I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And today we're going to look at verse 15. The title of this message is, Why Jesus Came. I want to begin by reading our passage, and I want to get a running start. I want to begin in verse 12, but our focus will be upon verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I want to begin reading in verse 12. The Apostle Paul addresses his young son in the faith, Timothy, and he really pulls back the veil and lets us look into his heart and soul. This is very autobiographical. This is very personal. You'll note how many times the first person singular pronoun, I, is found here as Paul really bears his soul with Timothy and with us. And beginning in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul describes his conversion to Christ there. It was such a, a dramatic turnaround of, of his life as he went from being a blasphemer and a persecutor and a, a violent aggressor to become a, an apostle of grace. In verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 15, this is our text. This is our focus this morning. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. In verse 15, we find here the primary reason why Christ came into the world. It's been said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. This is the main thing. We know who Jesus was and is who came into the world. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man, the living Word incarnate, the great I Am. He was the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we know who it was who came, and we know where He came. He came to a specific place on the map. He came to Bethlehem. He entered this world in the city of, of David. We know when He came. He came in the fullness of time. He came in the year that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census be taken of the known world. It was 6 or 5 B.C., and we know how He came. He came through the portal of a virgin's womb as the Holy Spirit sired within the womb of Mary, a virgin, the sinless humanity of Christ, and it was joined to His eternal deity to become the God-man, truly God, truly man. But the real question is why? Why did He come? 
Why did he come to this earth? There are many secondary reasons that can be given. He came to reveal the Father to us. He said in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If we want to know what God is like, we just look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God in human flesh. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. God the Father is now seen, His attributes, His person in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. He came to show us how to live. 1 John 2 verse 6 says that we are to walk as He walked. And so, He gave us the example of how to live in such a way as to pursue holiness and to please the Father. He came to be the true interpreter of the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, He said to the religious leaders of His day, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And He gave the correct interpretation of the law. We know that He also came to be a sympathetic high priest. He, he came to, and, and got into our skin, and He lived among us, and He was faced with every temptation such as we, yet without sin. And because He has entered this world, He experientially knows what we face, and the pressures and the snares. He's a sympathetic high priest. But what's the primary reason? What's number one on the list? The primary reason that Jesus came was to save us from our sins. And as we come to the Lord's table today, I believe this text is a very appropriate text to to prepare us as we take the Lord's Supper so that we will keep the main thing the main thing. Everything else is subsidiary and secondary The primary reason of Christ's coming is supreme. What we find in verse 15, what we find here in verse 15 is really the gospel in a nutshell. Here is, in reality, the entire forest in an acorn. Here is, in verse 15, really the John 3.16 of the Apostle Paul's writings. Here is a minimalist statement of the gospel contained in these nine English words. Every one of us needs to know what the gospel is. No one can be saved without knowing the gospel. And every one of us have, need to have the gospel again and again and again reinforced in our hearts. That's why we come to the Lord's table month after month after month after month after month. It is to reinforce in our hearts the primary reason for which Jesus Christ came into this world, that it would never be in, a, uh, in the periphery of our life, but that it would always be primary. And so, as we look at verse 15, I want to break it out into three parts. I want you to note the priority of the gospel. That's found in the opening words. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. We'll talk about in just a moment why this means and points to the priority of the gospel. And then the point of the gospel is right in the middle of verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the very essence of the gospel. And then I want you to note the power of the gospel. That's at the end of verse 15, that the gospel has saved 
the foremost of sinners in an argument from the greater to the lesser, if the grace of God can save the greatest sinner, then the grace of God can save you and me. So, let's walk through this passage together. And I want you to note first the priority of the gospel because Paul begins by stressing the supreme importance about, of what he's about to say in the middle of the verse. So, he, he, he weights this in a very heavy way by beginning this verse by saying, it is a trustworthy statement. Now, why would he say that? Isn't everything that he says trustworthy? Isn't the previous verse trustworthy? Isn't the verse before that trustworthy? Isn't every verse in the entire Bible trustworthy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible, plenary inspiration? What's the point of starting this verse by saying it is a trustworthy statement? Well, this is like Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say unto you. Everything that Jesus said was true, but some things that Jesus said rise to a higher level of importance. Everything is inspired that is in the Bible, but some things are mountain peaks that rise higher than other verses and are supremely important this is one of those verses. It rises to the highest level of importance. That's why I say the priority of the gospel. It's as if Paul, when anticipating when this would be set before us, I mean, this verse really should be in, in, in bold font, all caps, italicized, underlined, and highlighted with a yellow highlighter, okay? Okay and maybe a finger pointing to it and a spotlight uh, on, on this, this verse. It, it's that important. Well, what Paul is saying here, when he says it's a trustworthy statement, he is saying there is a statement in the early church that became like a confession of faith that Paul takes and places it in this epistle. Uh, Colossians 1 is the Colossians hymn. It was a hymn that had been sung, and there are parts of Colossians 1 that are then placed into the Scripture and finds its place in inspired Scripture. This was really an early doctrinal creed, what we see here in the middle of verse 15. In fact, it was, we could say, it was the original Apostles' Creed. Long before the fourth century, here is the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's the bare truth of the gospel. It, it is a, a common statement, a popular statement that circulated among the believers in the early church and became really a, a confession of faith for new believers as they came into the kingdom of God. And, and it's not enough just to know it. It's not enough just to know it's a trustworthy statement it must have full acceptance. And that's why he adds in, in verse 15, deserving full acceptance. This word deserving in the original language means weight, something very weighty. In other words, this is not a, a, a light, fluffy statement. That this, this, what follows, has, has gravitas, 
has, has gravity, has a, a, a weightiness of importance about it that should weigh heavy upon our hearts and upon our minds this day. And he says, deserving full acceptance, wholehearted acceptance, complete acceptance, not to be marginally accepted, but to be embraced. In other words, the gospel rises to the highest level of importance. That's why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 and and, and verse 1 that the gospel is of first importance. He says, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, and he goes on to say in verse 3, as of first importance. In other words, other matters take a secondary place. This must be the very tip of the spear of our Christian faith and of our Christian life. It is of supreme importance, the priority of the gospel. This is where Jesus began His public ministry by proclaiming the gospel to repent and believe and enter into the kingdom of God. Before we move on, let me just say this to you. If you believe anything, you must believe this. You cannot be a Christian and fail to believe this. To fail to believe this puts you outside the kingdom of God. This is the entry point into the kingdom of God, and it continues to be the foundation upon which we stand. The gospel is not incidental. It is fundamental. It is primary, the primacy of the gospel. But this leads us now second to the point of the gospel. Paul Paul now comes to this trustworthy statement. This is this trustworthy statement now that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the gospel in a, in a nutshell. Every one of us here today must know the gospel. We ought to be able to wake you up in three in the morning, and within five seconds, if we asked you, what is the gospel, this ought to be coming forth from your lips, you, that you own this by faith so much because you have accepted this trustworthy statement. It answers the question, what is the gospel? As we look at this just by way of our first orientation, and I want to walk through it word by word with you, but just a general overview, please note that these nine words in English, eight in the original Greek, it's all rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the sum and the substance of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the very essence of the gospel, and whenever we believe the gospel, we are believing in Jesus Christ. Whenever we give a witness for the gospel, we are giving a witness 
for Jesus Christ. Your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is how you believed in the gospel, how you believed in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not about me and it's not about you. The gospel is about the Son of God, the Son of Man, who came into this world to save sinners, and that by faith I have laid hold of this Christ, but He, not me, He, not us, He and He alone is the gospel, solos Christos, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what is the source of this statement? Before we walk through this word by word, I mean, where did it come from? What is the origin of this trustworthy statement that circulated in the early church that Paul pulls and inserts right here in this epistle? Well, the most plausible explanation is that it has come from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it is two statements that Christ spoke that were well known to the early church and have been merged together into one statement. In that sense, it's a compound statement. Two two statements from the lips of Jesus that have come together to form one statement. And those two statements are, first, it's Matthew 9, verse 13. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Those two words, come and sinners. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then Luke 19, verse 10, that incredible account of the conversion of of Zacchaeus, the immediate, dramatic, radical conversion of Zacchaeus. Jesus said at the summation of His conversion, for the Son of Man has come, there it is again, come, to seek and to save, there it is, save, that which is lost. Those two sayings brought together to form this trustworthy statement, this certain and reliable and faithful statement. This is the bare essence of the gospel that would flow from the pen of the Apostle Paul. So, let's drill down now into these words in the very middle of verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The first word is Christ, means the anointed one, the one who was anointed with the power and the person of the Holy Spirit in the River Jordan, as he began his public ministry, as he stepped out of obscurity, and he stepped into the spotlight of his public ministry, into the River Jordan, as he was baptized by John the Baptist so that he would identify with those whom he came to save, the heavens opened up. God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descended like a dove upon him, and he was anointed with power to carry out His public ministry in His sinless humanity that was joined to eternal deity, such that it was the Spirit of God 
that impelled him. It was the Spirit of God that, that infused him and used him. It was the Spirit of God that enabled him to say what he said, do what he did. It was the Spirit of God that helped him set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem and go all the way to Calvary, to go all the way to the cross, to not recoil, to not pull back, and to keep him suspended upon that cross. He was the anointed one. It's what the word Messiah means, Meshua in the Old Testament, the one who has come in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. It speaks of His humanity. It speaks of His sinless humanity. After His baptism, He went into the synagogue in Nazareth. He took the scroll, that is, the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet. He unrolled it to what is for us, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to preach, to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is the one who came. He came in the power of the Holy Spirit so that He would successfully carry out His saving enterprise of sinners. The next word is Jesus, Christ Jesus. And in typical Pauline fashion, He puts Christ first, and then Jesus, the name Jesus stresses His deity. It means Jehovah saves. Jesus was God in human flesh. Truly God, truly man, God in human flesh. The angel announced in Matthew 1, verse 21, you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. It's in His very name He has come to save. The next word is came. Christ Jesus came. He, he, he came down. He, he condescended. He, he descended from on high, and He came all the way down to this earth. He, he had to come. He had to leave heaven, and He had to come all the way down to, to you and me and to get in our skin and to enter the human race in order to lift us back up to heaven. The Son of God had to become the Son of Man in order that sons of men might become, the, become sons of God. We, we could not work our way up to God. We, we could not pull ourselves up to God with our own religiosity and morality. No, God had to leave heaven and come down to us in order to lift us back up to heaven. He had to come, and it implies His pre-existence, that He existed before He came. It, it points to His eternality. John 8, verse 38, before Abraham was, I am. He came down to us. Next three words, into the world world here speaks to the realm of mankind. He entered into the sphere of fallen humanity. He, he entered into the foul, filthy, sin-cursed world, this cesspool of iniquity, this world of filth and depravity. 
he, he, he went from the heights of heaven to the depths of the earth. He, he, he left the, the palaces of glory and descended down into the, the prison house of, of this world where mankind is lost and, and, in, and perishing, where mankind is in rebellion against God, where the human race, its very toes are up against the precipice of eternal hell, where mankind is alienated from God, where mankind is under the wrath of God, where mankind is dead in trespasses and sins. He, he, he didn't come down into a garden. He came down into a loathsome world where the devil is the god of this age, the prince of this world. He, he invaded what he had created. And please note the next two words, to save. He came to save. What does the word save mean? It means to rescue someone from imminent danger. It means to deliver someone from destruction, and in our case, eternal destruction. He rescued us from ruin. He came on a rescue mission, and to rescue us from what? Loneliness, insecurity, bad job singleness, being married. He came to rescue us, listen very carefully, from the wrath of an angry God. Romans 1 verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You and I live on a doomed planet that is perishing in sin, and Jesus has come to rescue us who have been born under the wrath of God, separated from God, offensive to God. Understand this, salvation is from God, from the wrath of God, by the grace of God, for the glory of God. Did you get that? Salvation is from God, by God, for God. It is from the wrath of God. That's where the world is this very moment. Not just awaiting the last day, the, the day of His wrath and great tribulation. No, right now, this very moment, the entire world is under the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath of God by the love of God, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. His grace has triumphed over His judgment, and it is for the glory of God, for the praise of God, 
for the, for the adoration of God. Our salvation is all about God. The fact that we escape hell and enter heaven is somewhat incidental. It is that God would be worshipped and God would be praised for His mercy to be bestowed upon those who have been so offensive to Him, who have violated His, His holiness and His law. Jesus came to save. Let, let us not forget this. He, he didn't come to put a plus on our A. He came to save those who have failed and fallen short of the glory of God and are under His condemnation, rightly so. And then the last word, sinners. He came to save sinners. He did not come to save good people. He came to save bad people. He came to save evil people because... As Romans 3 says, there is none good, no, not one. Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, only God is good. Jesus came to save wretched, hell-bound sinners from eternal damnation that they so rightly deserve. Jesus only died for one kind of person, sinners church-going sinners, self-righteous sinners, immoral sinners, homeschooled sinners, private school sinners, public school sinners, Christian school sinners. He came to save sinners of every stripe and of every shape. He came into this world as a physician, listen to this, not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. And in order to be saved by Him, you must confess what a sinner you are. You must confess to Him that you are sick in your sin, and you desperately need His grace. No one enters into the kingdom of God who does not come to grips with this fundamental truth that, that I have sinned, and I have fallen short of the glory of God, and I am under the condemnation of Almighty God, and I desperately need to be saved. You don't need to be saved because you've gone through a financial hardship. You don't need to be saved because you've gone through some social disorder. You need to be saved because you're a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus came not to help you save yourself. He, he didn't come to help you get your act together. He came to rescue you from eternal ruin. And that reality is the black velvet backdrop upon which the diamonds of His mercy and grace are placed. How did He do this? by His sinless life, and by His substitutionary death. He both lived for us and He died for us. 
He lived for us under the law, the very law that we have broken again and again and again and again, and the the curse of the law is death, the second death. And Jesus entered this world and placed Himself under the very law that you and I live under, and where we have disobeyed and where Adam disobeyed, He obeyed perfectly, and by an entire lifetime of obedience to the law, He has secured by His active obedience the righteousness that is imputed to you in the act of justification by faith. He lived a perfect life such that the righteousness secured from that perfect life. He said, I've I've come to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. That is what is credited to us. That is what with which we are clothed the perfect righteousness that Jesus achieved in His sinless life. This then qualified Him to go to the cross, to die not for His own sins, for He had no sin, but to die in our place for our sins. And there upon the cross, God the Father transferred all the sins of all the people who would ever believe upon Him. The Bible says, Him who knew no sin... God made to be sin for us, and God delivered Him over to judgment upon that cross in our place. He was our substitute. He died a vicarious death in our place. That should have been you and me bearing our sins, but instead God supplied the substitute, His Son, Jesus Christ, and He bore our sins 1 Peter 2, verse 24, He bore our sins in His body upon that tree. He became a curse for us. By the shedding of His blood, He provided the only atonement, the only covering for our sin, and it was this atoning death of Christ upon the cross that has satisfied the righteous anger of God toward us. That is why there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus suffered our condemnation for us upon the cross. And when He shed His blood, it was through the blood of His cross that He achieved reconciliation between holy God and sinful man, and He's brought the two together. And by His death, He redeemed us, He purchased us from the slave market of sin and Satan to become his own possession. And he expiated our sins upon the cross. Our our sins were taken far, far away. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is why now our sins have been separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Our sins have been buried in the sea of his forgetfulness. Our sins he remembers no more. Jesus saved us at the cross. He provided forgiveness, which takes away our sin, and He provided righteousness, which clothes us to find perfect acceptance before God. We need more than just forgiveness. All forgiveness does is wipe the slate clean. There's got to be some positive righteousness in order to find acceptance before God. And you know what? Jesus did it all 
Jesus provided it all. And when he died upon the cross, he said, it is finished. The work has been done. Today, in just a moment, as we come to the Lord's table, we need to, we need to truly contemplate and meditate upon this. That there should be trembling in our hearts and rejoicing that God has provided such a Savior for us. The last thing I want you to note at the end of verse 15, where he concludes this verse, among whom I am foremost of all, that's the power of the gospel. There is no one beyond the saving power of the gospel. There is no one so deep into sin, but that the power of the gospel is yet greater to rescue and to redeem. And when Paul says this, this is no hyperbole in his mind. He sees himself as the foremost sinner. And what he writes in verse 13, immediately above, would document, he's telling the truth. This is no exaggerated statement. This is no false humility to draw us into him. He says he was formerly a a blasphemer, That is one who speaks evil of God, who slanders God. And every time he opposed the message of the cross and opposed the gospel, he was slandering God. He was blaspheming God. It was nothing but spewing blasphemies that were coming from his mouth as he denied the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he was a persecutor. The word literally means one who chases after others. He, he, was, he was running the Christians out of their homes. He was literally dragging them out of their homes, and he was running them out of their places of employment just to bring them down, and he was running them out of town. Acts 8 verse 3 says that he began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women and putting them into prison. He, he, he was like a a voracious lion seeking his prow. And then it says he was a violent aggressor, and this even builds up even higher. That, that is to say, he, he, he was bloodthirsty to destroy Christians and the church. He ran roughshod over them. He, he treated Christians with, with brutal force to inflict as much physical harm and damage to them as he possibly could, and emotional trauma. He stood there when Stephen was being stoned to death. He could have stepped in and stopped the whole thing, but he no doubt was savoring it. That's what he once was. Until he was on that Damascus road and Christ intervened and knocked him off his high high horse And he was converted suddenly, dramatically, immediately with a lordship salvation. Who are you, Lord? And so Timothy and Paul says, I was foremost of all sinners. What Paul is wanting Timothy to know and for you and me to know is that if he can save the chief of sinners, he can save you and me. 
Spurgeon said, if God can get the elephant onto the ark, he can get the ant onto the ark. And if he can get Saul of Tarsus into the kingdom in a moment, he can get you, he can get me through the narrow gate that enters into the kingdom. You may be here today and thinking, I have such a soiled and sinful past. I I did not grow up in a church like this. I have been embroiled in dark sin. Could Jesus save me? You may be thinking, I'm now living in such a lifestyle of sin. Could Jesus save me? Listen, He came into this world to save wretched, filthy, hell-bound sinners. And the grace that He provides is far greater than any sin or accumulation of sin In a moment, he can wipe the slate clean and give a right standing before God. And so, as we bring this to conclusion and as we come to the Lord's table, I want to ask you this. Have you come to see that Jesus came to save you? Have you confessed to God that you are a sinner who needs to be saved? Have you come to see that you cannot lift yourself up to God, but that Jesus had to come down to you to rescue you? Have you received this statement with full acceptance? Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and have you been dramatically converted? Has your life been turned around? Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? If not, do so this very moment. And for those of us who have met the risen Christ, for those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, I told you at the beginning of this message, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. This is the main thing of our Christian lives. For me to live is Christ, Philippians 1.21, and to die is gain, which means to go be with Christ. Everything about our Christian life revolves around Christ. We love Christ. We follow Christ. We obey Christ. We serve Christ. We worship Christ. We adore Christ. Everything in our life is about Christ. And so even as we come to the Lord's table this day, let us reaffirm our commitment to Christ. Let us do everything we can for Christ. Let us serve Christ and sacrifice for Christ. Let us spread the name of Christ far and wide, for there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Father, thank you that you have demonstrated your love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we come now to the Lord's table, 
cause our hearts to soar to the heights of heaven as we will take the bread and the cup together and as we will sing together, may we glory in the cross of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.